I'm Sid Druid. How's everybody doing? Yeah? <laughs> okay, so let me ask you a couple questions. The, uh, if this week were a color, what color would it be? Black. Burgundy. My burgundy boys back there. Green. So, like, level of stress indicated, level of excitement indicated, teal. Okay. Okay. Um, Again, for those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druid. I'm the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. Uh, RUF is a Christian campus ministry that exists uh, to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve each other, the church, and Jesus. Uh, RUF, let me tell you a little bit more about RUF. Um, RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced for the believer and the unbeliever, for the stressed and eager to get back to studying right now, and for the bored and ready to settle in and waste some time. For the student who's scrambling still to find a roommate for next year, and for the roommate and for the student that locked up their roommate in Decision Davidson pre-freshman year. <laughs> so or if it exists for those who aren't sure if the stories of the Bible are true, um, and for those of you who can't understand your own story except through the <laughs> stories like David's. In other words, whoever you are, wherever you are, uh, we're so glad you're here. We hope you feel welcome. Uh, we hope that RUF gets to know you and you get to know RUF, and that's part of our attempt to have people read very long, difficult passages up here, is to have them put a face with some people in RUF. All right, um, we've been discussing the life of David in large group. That's what we're doing right here, right now. And David's story, as we've talked about before, is in the Bible. It's in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. And in particular, it's in, in two books, First and Second Samuel. Um, misleading name. Really not that much about Samuel. Um, more about David. And then a little bit in First Kings, the first few chapters there. Um, let me tell you two reasons, and this, I'm going to go very quickly over this because we've talked about this a bunch. Two reasons that we're studying the life of David as opposed to any other life. We're looking at a guy who lived 3,000 years ago. So a long time ago. David is in so many ways so like us. He's so ordinary. He has his hits. He has his flops. He cries. He laughs. And he even has his share of doubts. Yet, secondly, David is also so not like us. He's so extraordinary. The New Testament mentions the name David 58 times. 58 times. There's no one mentioned by that name more than, more than David except Jesus in the New Testament. And oftentimes Jesus is called by the name of David. For instance, in Matthew chapter 9, two uh, blind beggars yell out, Have mercy, son of David. Have mercy, son of David. And what that means is they're asking to be healed. And they're asking Jesus in his capacity as the son of David to be healed. Which really tells us that David's life is acting like a neon sign. You know, think about a boot kicking. Las Vegas. Whatever you want. Showing forth, what, advertising what's inside the New Testament. That is, who Jesus is. That Jesus is a king who comes to heal the world. And Jesus' ministry actually deepens our understanding of David's life. It's a mutual process of feedback. 
So this is why our title for our series, our theme of our series, is The God After Our Own Hearts, because we're looking at um, not just David's life as a model for faith and a lack of faith, but also the life of David as about the God of the universe and his flat-out embarrassing love for his people, people like you and me and people like David. Um, Jesus, the son of David, is full of mercy and full of healing, as we'll even see in our passage uh, tonight. So just to give you some context, we're skipping around again. I know. There's a lot of chapters in First and Second Samuel. I don't know if you counted recently. So we went from chapter 25 to chapter 30. Um, I, just, I think it's an encouragement just to read alongside. If you're interested in hearing more about the story of David, kind of maybe catch up in between. You know, it's midnight, 2 o'clock in the morning, and you're about to hit that pillow, and you think, hmm, there's just a little bit of time. A sliver of moment with David. So, snuggle up with David and Saul in the wilderness adventures. <laughs> Did I just get fired? Okay. Um, so, anyway, we left David in the wilderness, and we left him in chapter 25 with Abigail and Nabal. And that was a great romantic story in many ways, but also a really fascinating story about beauty. And then we're picking up David's story, and he's in Philistine territory on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So he's moved from southern Jordan, uh, southern Judah, excuse me, southern is modern-day Israel, to the east coast of the Mediterranean. So he's moved a, a couple of hundred miles, perhaps, a couple tens of hundreds of miles, not tens of hundreds, tens of miles or hundreds of miles. Um, and he's really done this in an act of desperation because David is tired of hiding out. And he thinks, if I just join the enemies of Israel, then I'll be better off. And so he does. And starting in verse 1 of our passage, David and his men are coming home to Ziklag, which is their Philistine headquarters. That's where they've set up camp in enemy territory, and they find it's burnt to the ground, and their families and their earthly possessions are all gone missing. But before we step into the chaos and the rubble, let's pray. Father, um, I do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Um, I know that pretty much everyone in this room is probably in a different place. Um, This is the kind of week that separates people out. Um, Not by merit, necessarily, but just by the way that we handle it. Um, Some some of us are running scared. Some of us are confident. Some of us are bored and yawning, um, looking for things to do, and everyone's busy. (laughs) Some of us are busy pretending to be busy. Um, and some of us are just genuinely busy. And I pray that you would be with all of us no matter where we are and that you'd meet us with your word tonight, that this wouldn't be just an exercise of, of pretending to, to care, uh, pretending to know um, more about you, but this would be a moment where you show up in all your glory and all of your beauty and all of your intimacy and you overwhelm us. You overwhelm our senses. You overwhelm our sense of self and so that we wouldn't be able to leave this room without changing. We ask for that, Jesus, because we know you're powerful to do it, and you've promised to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In John Updike's book, Rabbit Run, there's this man named Habit Harry. I'm really going to have trouble speaking today, I can already tell. Uh, Harry Rabbit Angstrom, hence the name Rabbit Run. Okay, And he impulsively runs at the beginning of the book, from his family, from his responsibilities, and from his God. And the person tasked in this book, in this novel, to run after Rabbit, is a man named Jack Eccles. 
Jack Eccles happens to also be an Episcopal priest. And at key moments, John Updike decides as an author to focus the subplot on Jack Eccles' life. And I think it's really an interesting one to think about in light of this passage. You see, Eccles is well-respected. He's well-liked. He's a successful young professional. Okay? He's got a really beautiful and put-together family. Um, and the small community that he lives in respects and trusts him. But deep down, inside, Jack feels like he's failing. Jack Eccles feels like he's failing. Updike offers us glimpses of the places where Jack's life, where Eccles' life, feels out of control. In his family, he's losing control of his children. His eldest girl continues to get up out of bed, and he can't get her to stay in it. He can't get her to even put a shirt on without him doing it for him, for her. He, and his, his wife, who's so put together and so beautiful, is belittling him in everything that he does. Makes him feel about one inch small in all of his life. And his wavering faith as a minister and his self-confidence. And then in his job, Eccles feels like he's losing control of his church. He consistently avoids the agonizing, awkward visits that he needs to make to make his church thrive. And instead, he golfs weekly with this guy, Rabbit, who's on the run. A man who's on a dead sprint from commitment and for spiritual significance. And really, at this point in the story, Eccles is living for his weekly golf matches. That's what his life is all about. And they have become bigger than a mere game for him. In the spinning chaos of his threadbare life, Eccles is fighting a battle he thinks he can win. A battle that he thinks, if he succeeds in, will solve Rabbit's problems and thereby heal his weaknesses. Every part of his life will come together if he can just trounce Rabbit in a game in a round of golf. Look, you don't have to love literature. You don't have to be a minister with a young family. <clears throat> and you don't have to play golf to sympathize with Jack Eccles' situation, do you? We can all understand where he's coming from at some level, can't we? I mean, just last week I was talking with my boss in RUF, and he was talking about how great the ministry is going and how great my family is doing. And I was nodding on the outside, but on the inside, I felt kind of panicked. I felt like all he was saying was untrue. And you know what? I finally confessed to him that, hey, look, there's a lot of certain success here, but I feel like all the time I'm living with unfinished tasks, and I'm living with home projects that I haven't even started, let alone finished. And I feel so far behind and so deep down, I don't think I can possibly pick myself back up again. But everything's fine and everything looks great. But this isn't just a ministry problem. This isn't just a minister problem. Think about life at Davidson College for a minute, right? Everyone in your family, your friends back home, people, random people on the street see you. They pat your back and they say, well, buddy, well, little lady, you've certainly made something of your life now. You must be smart. You're going to be a success in your life. Maybe they don't say it in those words, but you know they think it. 
Meanwhile, it's midterms week, and most of you, most of the time, feel anything but successful, smart, and on the make. Either you're too busy, or you're not busy enough. We're afraid of failing, and at the same time, we're afraid of missing out on something. All these talented people shaping the world all around me, and am I making a dent of difference? Have I studied enough? Or how do I feel all this loneliness in this free time? What am I doing with my summer again? What am I doing with the rest of my life after I graduate? So we choose battles we can win. What's the weekly golf game that you've got going right now? What's the weekly golf game I've got going? What are we living for? What are we trying to use to gain some control in our lives? What's the thing or the person that we can use to live down the hype and live up to the expectations? Well, 1 Samuel chapter 30, David and his men have experienced this acute feeling of failure and a general lack of control. We've talked about this three weeks in a row, but remember, they're in the wilderness. And there's some sense in which they can't predict anything in the wilderness, including their own physical survival. But then they just experience this amazing moment in chapter 29. There's this euphoria. They've got unexpectedly delivered. David had painted them in a corner. They were in a jam. They were supposed to go and fight with the Philistines against their own people, their own brothers, their own sisters, their own fathers. But somehow, God used the generals of the Philistines to deliver them. And they're ecstatic. And they're marching home, and they're high five and they're singing songs. Who can even imagine the songs that they're singing in their ranks? And then all of a sudden, they turn the corner of the mountain pass, and they see a smoke in the distance, right above where they live. And they think, oh no. And they start running. And sure enough, all of their earthly goods, all of their furniture, their housing, their livestock, their children, their wives, are in the hands and perverse desires of the Malachites. Out to rape and to pillage the entire territory. And quite suddenly, this feeling of failure, their complete chaos, gets trained on a single, seemingly controllable moment that they can live for. What are we going to do next? What are we going to do next? Who are we going to fight? What battle are we going to fight that we can win? Are we going to fight the Malachites or are we going to fight David? What are we going to do? How can we regain control? And God uses this question to speak into our hidden insecurities, our feelings of failing even in a week like this, 1 Samuel chapter 30 tells us that Jesus is in control. He's in control. And he wins and he shares his successes. So therefore, we can find our strength in him. Jesus is in control. He's won. He shares his success. And therefore, we can find our strength in him. That's one of the main takeaway of the passage. And really, as I hinted at, this passage is not just about the full range of our life experience. Tragedy, victory, grief, anger, joy, generosity. It's not just about those things. It's also about that question. 
What do we do? And more importantly, what has Jesus done? So what do we do and what has Jesus done? That's what we're going to break down this passage in terms of emphasis and outline. And you can look on the handout, it'll explain this as well. But look, first, verses 1 through 10, we see where we go to draw strength in our chaos. And then verses 16 through 26, we see how Jesus shares his successes with us. The spoils of the successes with us. So verses 1 through 10, we see our strength in chaos. Verses 16 through 26, Jesus' spoils and success. So that's where we're going. Let's start with verses 1 through 10. How to draw strength when life feels out of control. So if you're a little disturbed at this point with the message... That's a good feeling because we're going to hopefully move through that together. Look, as we look through the first few verses together, I'd like us to put ourselves even more so in the place of David's men's shoes. What does it look like? What does it feel like to be in their situation? You followed David all throughout the desert. You followed him and you finally found some stability and a sense of home in Ziklag, which is a great name, in Philistia. Even better. And right now... You're at the end of a three-day triumphal march home. You haven't had to do the catch-22. You haven't had to fight. And then you see that smoke cloud, and you start running, and you see the really bad news that everything you own has been stolen. Your children and your wife are dead or enslaved. Your best-case scenario as a man of David, as a person in David's troop and his community, is that your wife and children are sex slaves or forced labor. That's your best case scenario. Do you realize that? That's what happens. So hopefully you can see why their emotions seem so extreme. Okay? I want you to understand how you get from verses 1 through 3 to verses 4 through 6. You can see why David's men reacted by raising their voices and and weeping until they had no more strength, verse 4. Why the people spoke of stoning David, verse 6. And look, after many moments of appropriate grief, David's men try to get a grip on the situation, and they do so by blaming David. Look at verse 6 with me. Their blame turns into retribution. They think David's life for the, the lives of our children and our wives. And look, this reaction is understandable at some level, right? David calls the shots. He decided whether to leave just a few people or a lot of people, but certainly not enough people for Ziklag to be well defended. And so Ziklag is destroyed and raped and pillaged. Further, their reaction, the men's reaction, is understandable because earlier in 1 Samuel, David's men were described as, quote, everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul came to the side of David. That's his community. His community is bitter, distressed, indebted people. That's who he's leading in the desert. So naturally these men, these men run from a bad decision, and, and, they, and they run from bad circumstances, and they, they're bound to make a bad decision in this case. And they're bound at some level to turn against David in that circumstance. But although the men's anger makes sense, it's not good. To borrow language from verse 6, the main reason, aside from trying to kill a man, that it's not good, is because they find strength in themselves. 
They're finding strength in themselves. Look, you see what happened? Life felt out of control. It felt chaotic. And what do they do? They reached down into themselves and they fanned a familiar flame. They thought, ah, the, the comfort of rage. The comfort of distress and bitterness. This is what I know. This is how I take control again. And so they thought, look, it's not going to bring back my wife and my kids. It's not going to bring back my possessions. But I can at least kill David. At least maybe I'll be able to do something in this chaos. And maybe, just maybe, I'll feel better with all the sadness and anger raging inside of me. And really what I want us to do is wrestle with how and where we draw strength when we feel powerless. Think about a scenario in your life, whether it's this week or weeks past or perhaps years past, where you've, when you felt powerless. And look, again, it can be when everything looks like it's working and it can be when nothing looks like it's working. Do we find control, do we find strength in ourselves in those moments? And what does that look like? Are we stroking and stoking our gifts? Are we thinking to ourselves, my intelligence and hard work has done it before, and it's going to do it again? Are we thinking maybe we're going straight into blame and shame? You're always like this, Sid. You never get ahead of your work. You're always behind your schedule. And by the way, you're so awkward. You're just absolutely awkward. You never, ever say the right thing at the right time. Believe it or not, lifting yourself up and putting yourself down are actually one and the same gesture. Okay? They're taking control of a situation that feels powerless. You feel helpless, and this is how you feel more in control. Even when it's these times when you control just one factor out of hundreds or even thousands of factors... That pretending like you did a great job with that one factor or did a terrible job with that one factor and it affected everything gives you control when you feel powerless. And it gives me that too. But David provides a needed contrast for this way of thinking. David shares the same out-of-control circumstances as men. Verses 4 and four and 6 and 5 make that clear. Look, verse 4 says he wept with the men. Verse 5 says his, his wives were both captured. P.S. We're going to return to that. That's uncomfortable. It's called polygamy. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Okay? Don't worry. But for now, I want us to look at how David resigns control of stress, how he deals with this feeling of failure that's growing. And then verse 6 tells straight up, which is such a beautiful phrase. And I'm going to spend a little bit unpacking what it means, because I think it's so powerful. David strengthened himself in the Lord and his the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Look, think about this. Time's ticking. They've wept. There's, there's, the people have t- taken off who knows how long ago. And everything in David is saying, and everyone around him is saying, let's do something. Okay, But look what David does. He doesn't just do something. He stands there. Which is amazing. Okay? 
And he doesn't just look into himself like his men. He doesn't turn his grief into stoning anger. He doesn't look around at like everyone else picking up stones and think, well, I'm going to pick up stones first. David turns to his Lord, who is enough to be in control even then. And he turns to his God, who cares enough about him personally to make a difference. But what does this look like, right? Because we always talk about turning to God, praying to God. What exactly is he doing in this moment? And I think we can safely say that strengthening ourselves in the Lord looks like two things. Okay? First, David is reminding himself of God's promises for him. David is reminding himself of God's promises for him. And we know this from an earlier use of the same phrase in 1 Samuel chapter 23. At that point, Jonathan grabs David by the hands and strengthens him by telling him that nothing and no one can get in the way of his kingship. That he will be the king, because he's the true king. Even over Jonathan, and even over Jonathan's father, Saul. And perhaps this looks like for us, remembering that in Jesus, we're in God's royal family. And what does that mean? That's a no matter what statement. Do we get what that means? No matter how badly we think we're doing, God wants to hang around with us. No matter how awkward we feel, God considers us worthy. Worth knowing, worth enjoying, worth spending time getting to know better. That's so powerful. What if we said that to ourselves? What if we lived into that reality? I think turning to the Lord would be a lot easier. The second thing strengthening oneself looks like is in verses 7 through 8. It looks like seeking counsel in God. Look, we don't have this. We don't have this magic eight ball kind of thing, that piece of clothing that we can ask questions and get a yes or no answer to, right? You shake the priestly ephod, which is like a t-shirt or like a, a vest, and you sort of shake it and it sort of says yes or no, maybe, it looks murky, Right? We don't have that. We don't have that. That's an Old Testament thing. That's part of the priestly uniform for the temple. And for some of us, that is straight up disappointing. We think, what in the world? How do the Israelites have better stuff than us? <laughs> right? That's really annoying. How great would it be to get a yes or no answer to life's pressing questions? Am I supposed to marry so-and-so? Yes. Okay? <laughs> that would be great. Dating would be so much easier. Okay? But the Bible is promising us something better, and I don't think we believe this. We don't have any old Abiathar. We don't have some special but mysterious priestly t-shirt. We have Jesus. We have Jesus, who is described as a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, who is able to sympathize with our every weakness, who gives us mercy and grace to help us in our times of need. Or at least that's how Hebrews describes him in chapter 4. But I want you to hear the way that Dale Ralph Davis explains why that's a benefit. Because I think it's so powerful. We may not get precise answers to our questions, but we will find grace to help. Which is usually what we need more than answers. I don't often need information, but I need endurance. I don't often need to know something, I instead only need to know how to stay on my feet. In other words, 
God has given us what we need versus what we think we need, which is a very hard truth to live into. And I'd like to return to the novel Rabbit Run for a second and this idea of a conversation that happens with Jack Eccles and his colleague. They make, a sa- they make the same point. Jack Eccles' colleague, Fritz Krubenbach, is talking to Jack in the middle of a crisis, this crisis that he's feeling about the feeling of failure. And after a lengthy self-diagnosis where Jack Eccles has turned himself inside out and described every nuance of detail, every possible problem, and, and also the way he's solving it through solving Harry Rabbit Angstrom's problems, there's this beautiful monologue that he launches into that Fritz Krubenbach, this other pastor, tells him where and how to draw strength and why it matters. And he puts it so bluntly, it's pretty shocking. He says it this way. Do you think it's your job to meddle in people's lives? You think now your job is to be an unpaid doctor, to run around and plug up holes and make everything smooth. I don't think that. I don't think that's your job. Do you ever think any more about what God sees, or have you grown beyond that? It seems to you our role is to be cops. Cops without handcuffs, cops without guns, cops without anything but our own good human nature. I say you don't know what your role is, or you'd be home locked in prayer. There is your role. There is where your comfort comes from. Faith, not this little finagling a body can do here and there, stirring up the bucket. In running back and forth, you run from your God-given duty to make your faith powerful. So when the call comes, you can go out and you can tell them, yes, he is dead, but you will see him again in heaven. Yes, you suffer, but it's Christ's pain you suffer with. When Sunday morning comes, when we go before their faces, we must walk up, not worn out with misery, but full of Christ, hot with Christ, on fire. Burn them with the force of our belief, and that is why they come. Now I'm serious, make no mistake, there is nothing but Christ for us. All the rest, all this decency, all this busyness is nothing. It's the devil's work. Look, that's strongly worded. And it's directed towards a professional minister like me. But I think you can quickly see how that might apply to you and to your circumstances right here, right now. At a certain point, strengthening ourselves in Jesus is not a matter of technique. It's a matter of putting down all the other well-meaning self-improvement projects we have in mind and praying that we can feel full of Christ hot with Christ. But I think this whole idea of strengthening ourselves in the Lord begs a question, doesn't it? What does it beg? <coughs> Who is this Lord? Who is this Jesus that we are drawing strength from? Verses 16 through 26 get at that truth. They speak to this by showing us the success of the Son of David and how he shares in the spoils of that success with his people. That's point two of the outline. We see this whole process in the larger-than-life actions of King David. So if you look there, you'll see a little bit of what it's talking about. Look, verses 16 through 20, we see the win. 
We see the fulcrum of the story, the pivot point. All of a sudden, despair turns into success. David has a complete and utter victory over the Amalekites. He's outnumbered. He's got 400 men, right? All of his men have just done three days of marching plus tracking down the Amalekites, Amalekites, and they're tired even more so. And as many people flee from the Amalekites as he has men. But think about the way that the God has orchestrated this win. There's no guard. The Amalekites are, are, are incapacitated by drink and food. So they can't defend themselves well. But look, before we pity the Amalekites, right? Before we say, that's really sad, it's not fair. I want you to remember that they'd stolen all of David's men's possessions. <coughs> that they had taken their wives, and they had taken their children, and they had promised either a life with them or a life with others that would be slavery for pleasure or slavery for labor. That is someone else's pleasure. And there's this longer conversation that's going to be had that we need to have about God's justice and how that fits in with God's love in this passage. Okay, And I promise you, in after spring break in two weeks, we will have that conversation. But for now, I want you to understand that this passage's point is not the battle itself. It's actually the aftermath of the battle. The aftermath of the battle is this. We see a God whose justice is matched only by his generosity. Verses 18 through 20 tell us three different times that David has secured everything. He's recovered every single thing that was lost. He recovered every single thing that was missing. And nothing was harmed. And then David's men speak to this. And they make a fair and common critique, right? What do they say? Why should everybody get the spoils? Remember, 200 people are left at the brook Besor. So only 400 people fight the battle. And so the 400 people say, look, they didn't risk their lives. They were tired and not strong. Why do they get the loot? Why do they get the reward? And this is where David assumes the same tone as that, as that Lutheran priest, Fritz Krubenbach in Rabbit Run. And he says it this way, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given to us. Verse 23. Look, not only does David give the 200 tired baggage people, the people who stayed with the baggage, not only does he give them lots of loot, he goes and he gives all the loot to the people in Judah. In verse 26. All these people who he was running around in their backyard and they didn't lift a finger to help him. Do you see how extravagant and seemingly silly this is? Do you know why David does this? Because David understands that the Lord gives victory, and he understands that the Lord gives his spoils. You see, David understands this because David has lived it. And he's lived it quite recently in his own life. He knows he doesn't deserve any of the spoils, Look, David fought bravely, sure. David fought hard. But he also got scared. He also deserted for 16 months to the enemy of God, to the Philistines. And there almost had to fight his own people because of his own fear. 
Yes, David made a good decision to make a fast strike against the Malachites. But he rescued his two wives. Two, not one. And look, polygamy is going to be the center of all of the feuding of 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. The Bible does not condone multiple wives in the Old Testament. In fact, it makes a narrative case against it. And so David knows, in the midst of this, that God is looking with pleasure upon him. In a phrase, David gets God's unmerited favor. In a word, he gets his grace. And really, King David's success and sharing his spoil with the undeserving is just a dim, Polaroid picture of King Jesus' justice and his generosity in all things. Jesus defeated our enemies on the cross, the evil in our world, the evil in our lives, the evil in our hearts. Do you realize that every single piece of evil will be done? That has an expiration date stamped onto its forehead. There's a time when it will be no more. And Jesus celebrates the just triumph of his goodness over evil by showering us with gifts. Whether we're tired and sitting out our struggles next to the baggage again, or we're fighting sin and we're angry with everyone else who doesn't fight as hard as us. He gives it to both people. But King Jesus gives gifts to his people that are more than livestock and even more than happy marriages and beautiful children. He gives the ultimate gift, which is his strength and his presence. He gives his presence to us by his promises. But what is this? What does this mean? Right? Can you think of a moment when you felt God's presence and his promises? Jesus asks us to go way back. In the Gospels, he asks us to go back to our childhood, to think about when we were small. Right? In the Bible, Jesus says, think about when you're small. Think about what the strength of God looks like. A strength of a God who loves to dance with his children. To spin them around on the tops of his feet. Think about that strength that looks like a God who never tires of playing dress up and tea party with his daughters. Even when they stomp around like angry princesses. Think about the strength of a God who looks, who, what, what the strength of God looks like when he never fails to delight in playing catch in the yard with his sons. Even when we drop the ball and we quit and we go home like scared princes. So when we are full of Christ, when we are hot with Christ, it merely means that we've been in our daddy's arms again and we're still flush with the experience. We're still flush with what it feels like to be lifted up and dangled and danced around. Even in the midst of our anger, even in the midst of our fear, even in that powerless moment that we all feel weary over. That is, God loves you in Jesus, however you are right now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. Um, I just pray that some of this would sink in for us. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult passage. There's lots of stuff going on. Um, and I pray uh, amidst the distractions outside that you would really focus our hearts and that you would um, 
encourage our thoughts to think our thoughts after you. And I feel, most of all just feel like you'd help us to capture the image of, of your grace and your mercy. What does it look like that you spin us in the tops of your feet? That you never tire of the silliness of playing dress up in human flesh. That you never tire of the way that um, we ask you to the point of boredom to play catch with us. Because you endure the misery of being uh, the infinite becoming finite. I pray, Father, that that would be the cry of our hearts and we'd find strength in that in the midst of difficulty. Um, even in a difficulty that we are afraid, afraid to acknowledge. We ask for this mercy in your name. Jesus, amen.